I wonder, how would you say that you're doing this morning? How would you say you are doing this morning? How would you be evaluating that question? Because I think the mental math that we engage in, if we're just to think about how we are, it's pretty simple and straightforward. So the Navy midshipmen are soaring after their first victory over a top 10 team in football in over 30 years. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos is no doubt elated, the one who just won the Nobel Peace Prize for trying to bring about uh, a truce with the FARC, with those Colombian rebels, and also you know, banking a cool million dollars in the process. No doubt, quite a happy man this morning. Executives at Gap. Gap, that clothing company that some of you are just now realizing is actually still in business. Executives at Gap, quite pleased. Friday, stock up. I think the highest percent it's been up in more than almost a decade on Friday. And yet, others perhaps not doing quite as well. So, Donald Trump and the GOP, it's not been a good week. Not so well after video surfaced of the presidential nominee jokingly referring to women in the most lewd and vile of ways. President Obama Supporters of the Affordable Care Act, well, not so well after former President Clinton was caught referring to that act as crazy and his own daughter Chelsea joking about the affordable or lack thereof nature of that act. And marketing execs at McDonald's, well, they're not doing quite so well after it was revealed this week that only one in five millennials has ever actually bit into one of their scrumptious Big Macs. All right, so it's, I don't think in the end it's that complicated. We're doing well when, according to our own math, things in life are going well, and vice versa. I think it's really that simple for us. But should it be? Are things like peace prizes and rising polls, are newly minted degrees or stock market gains really an indication that our lives are going well? We want to think so. We often do. But what if they're not a good indication? What if actually getting what you want, far from being a sign of prosperity, is actually an indication of a deeper poverty? Is getting what you want really a reliable guide to whether or not your life is going well? And I think to help us consider this question, I want us to turn again in our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be thinking about chapters 9 through 11 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to go there now. 1 Samuel chapter 9. You can find it on page 231 if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you. Again, that's page 231. And just a a little context, if you're coming in last week, chapter 8, we saw Israel had, had pretty much hit the rewind button, right? Tragically, the sons of Israel's leader, her godly leader, Samuel, well, they were no more godly than his predecessor, Eli's sons. And it seems once again, Israel has walked up and is looking right over this spiritual precipice, and yet... To this spiritual problem, recall back in chapter 8, to the spiritual problem, they actually grasp for a political solution. They, They call for monarchy. They have a king, God is their king, but in their fear, they reject him. And they ask for a king like the nations. 
and we close with chapter eight and God acquiescing, God giving them the desires of their own heart. They get what they want. And so I ask you again, is getting what you desire a reliable indication that everything in your life is really going well? Well, just to give you a bit of a user's guide to the message this morning, what we're going to do for the first half or so of our time together is just walk through our text and read much of it. I want us to climb into the story and and really get a feel for the wonder and the surprise of it all. Now, warning, that will require a little bit of patience as we walk through it and spend a little bit more time doing that. Um, But I think it's going to pay off because many of the events in chapters 9 through 11 aren't super familiar to us. And then what we're going to do is spend the last part of our time, and from the text here, 9 to 11, we're going to draw two lessons. We're going to draw out two lessons. All right, so let's first begin. Let's, let's dive into the story for the next number of minutes here. And let's pick up the story, chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphiath, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. All right, let's just stop right there. First two chapters, and here we're introduced to this character named Saul. And we've got to admit, just from verses 1 and 2, the guy's a stud. He's an impressive figure. He is Adonis-like looks. He wouldn't only grace the cover of GQ, but evidently, given his stature, the guy would be a first-round draft pick. Right, Head and shoulders above the rest, exceedingly tall, dark, handsome, and notice he's even wealthy. Right, This is a devastating combination. In stature and in standing, in pedigree and in presence, in all of these ways, he is, verses 1 and 2, he's literally head and shoulders above the rest. Now, that sets us up for this character of Saul, and then in chapter 9, verse 3, all the way through chapter 10, verse 16, these verses are all framed, we see, around these mysterious disappearing donkeys. If you read the text, you might have just passed right by, but this whole section is framed around these mysterious disappearing donkeys, and evidently there's a good number of these donkeys, otherwise Kish wouldn't have sent his precious son and servants wandering about for days after them. And yet, as you read, we notice they are peculiar in how elusive they are. These are elusive donkeys. So either Saul is not the most competent shepherd Or these stealth donkeys are really never meant to be found in the story. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 3, let's continue with the story. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, 
Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he he is a man who is held in honor, and all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. For formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. All right, so these days of fruitless wandering have earned them nothing but some bruised feet, right, some battered egos, except the mention in Zuth there in chapter 9, verse 5, that ought to catch our attention for Zuth, well, that's Samuel's land. That's where Samuel's from. All of this wandering has landed Saul and his servant right on Samuel's front doorstep, Right, how fortuitous that of all their wandering, they've now landed right here before the one man in Israel who can actually help them out. But oddly enough, notice it's not Saul, but it's his servant that seems to grasp this opportunity before them. So we pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. And afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. And so they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, we're tempted to run right past encounters at wells, but we shouldn't because we've seen this before. Encounters at wells are often very significant events. Think of Isaac with Rebekah, and Rebekah, rather, in Genesis 24, or think of Jacob with Rachel, or Moses with Zipporah, or Jesus with the woman at the well, right? Watering holes are where People meet, and they have their lives changed. And in some ways, that's still true today, but that's for another sermon. Now listen, the Old Testament doesn't have a word for providence, but we can't escape the fact that right here, Saul is arriving at the city just in time for Samuel to come up to offer the sacrifice. And this is all in the preparation for a special feast. And we don't know whose feast this is to be in honor of, but we're about to find out. And in many ways, this whole section hinges on verses 5 to 17 that we're about to read. They're not essential to the narrative, but they are essential to how we're to understand the narrative. So we pick up the story, nine, chapter 9, verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, when he's still wandering out looking for those donkeys, before, the day before he comes, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince 
over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. All right, so whereas Saul has stumbled into town with his eyes searching for these mysterious donkeys, God is saying to Samuel, hey, here's the man. This man that I told you about yesterday, here he is, right here. Behold, here is Israel's future king. And so we pick up the story, 918. Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind to them. They have all been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite? from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head, the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. And so the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. All right, let's pause there. All right, so what a turn of events in Saul's own life. He began the day despondent on a dusty hillside looking for these disappearing donkeys, and he ends the day right here as the guest of honor for the most important man in all of Israel. How fortunes change and how they change for Saul in just a single day. Samuel has prepared an inaugural party for Saul. It's just that no one quite grasps that even right here, what we have is we have a coronation celebration. And that includes Saul. I don't even think Saul understood. He's genuinely surprised in verse 21. He's saying, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? You know, he came to learn the fate of these donkeys, and yet now he's coming to learn something of his own fate. Well, what, what, is it, what does it all mean? As he goes to bed that night, staring up at the stars, trying to make sense of what just happened today, what does it mean? Well, chapter 9, verse 26, all the way through 1016, well, th- these verses really reveal what the previous day meant. And they reveal that Saul is to be God's anointed 
He's to be God's anointed to save his people from their enemies. And he confirms it in 926 through 1016. He confirms that we're not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you. He confirms it really with three signs. With three signs. First, there are two men by Rachel's tomb, and Saul comes across them. And we got to think, okay, Rachel, Rachel, all right, she, she, she died giving birth to whom? Well, to Benjamin. What tribe is Saul from? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. See, it's a sign. That's sign one. Sign two, Saul's going to run into three men at the Oak of Tabor, and they're going to be carrying items used in the sacrificial offerings. And though not a priest, Saul is called to accept the loaves. Now, he shouldn't. He's not a priest, but he's called to. Why? Because he's been set aside as the Lord's anointed. He's been qualified now to eat holy bread, as David would later in 1 Samuel 21, 21, and as as David's greater son, right, Jesus would do the very same thing. And yet the third sign is even more oppressive, impressive rather, because here we read that that the Spirit's going to rush upon Saul and Saul's going to prophesy, and they're going to wonder, is Saul now among the prophets even? Three different signs, all meant to indicate that Saul has been set aside as the Lord's anointed. Now, if you've been reading through the text this week, and a few of you have asked me uh, questions about uh, chapter 10, verse 6, and then verse 10, and then later in eleven six, and how we're to understand the Spirit of the Lord coming down upon Saul, and this statement in chapter 10, verse 9, if you notice there, it says um, in chapter 10, verse 9, that, that God gave Samuel another heart. He gave him another heart. And we tend to associate this language of the Spirit coming down and, and a heart, another heart, with, with language of, of conversion, of regeneration, of the new birth. You think of John chapter 3. And so some of you wonder, is, does this text teaching us that, that Saul just got converted? Because as we read through the rest of 1 Samuel, that would create some questions for us if you know the direction that Saul's life takes. And just for those of you who are sort of peculiarly, I shouldn't say you're well interested and you've got good theological questions about this. What's clear is that individuals in the Old Testament, they're often empowered by the Spirit. But that's not the same thing as being continually indwelt by the Spirit. That indwelling of the Spirit, that continual indwelling, not just for a few but for all, that's really what the Old Covenant longs for and that's what the New Covenant fulfills once Jesus has been glorified. And if you read carefully, notice it says that Saul received another heart in chapter 10, verse 9. It doesn't say that he received a new heart, right? A new heart is how Ezekiel chapter 11 or chapters 36 and 37 speak to the new covenant, the one who's been changed from the inside out. That's not what it says about Saul. It merely says Saul received not a new heart, but another heart. And I think in this sense, the author's He's not trying to tell us here that Saul is a converted man. So much so is is that Saul's a uniquely empowered man by God to fulfill particular purposes. And so far we've seen it's a story of lost and found. Saul began chapter 9 verse 3 looking for lost donkeys, but what he's come to find in these verses is his own destiny. And now all that's been hidden is about to be revealed. So picking up the story in chapter 10, verse 17. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And the same brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them in the book and laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, and they brought him no present, but he held his peace. So what do we have? This is is Saul's like public coronation service. But we have to say it's a bit unusual. It's rather anticlimactic, for it begins very critically, right? God saying, you've rejected your God. It begins critically, and it ends somewhat comically, doesn't it? I mean, Saul's a head taller than any other, and yet that didn't prevent him from trying to helplessly hide under the baggage. We want to cut the guy a little slack, all right? Samuel has just told Saul that the hopes of a nation rest upon his own shoulders, but it's not especially confidence-inspiring when your future king is cowering under some ladies' purses and some overnight bags. It's no wonder some are left saying, how can this man save us? In verse 27, and yet his opportunity comes soon enough. We pick up chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes. And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all of the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, 
and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All right, so what's just happened in in Saul's own life, early in his administration, right, a threat has come. And it emerges, and, and how will this new king respond, right? That he's put to the test immediately, and will the people follow him? And don't miss the horrifying situation that the people of Jabesh-Gilead are actually in. To lose your right eye, right eye was a way to humiliate, a way to shame your enemies. But it's also a precarious position for Saul to be in, too. For the, for the people of Jabesh-Gilead, if you're not familiar with the story of Judges in chapters 19 through 21, These people were the ones who had refused to honor their tribal obligations to fight for Israel, which means, in effect, these guys are the draft dodgers. They're the ones who didn't go into battle to fight for the people. And so Saul finds himself immediately not just with this threat, but he's between a political rock and a hard place. He's the king, he ought to do something, and yet who wants to lead thousands out on behalf of a bunch of draft dodgers that wouldn't fight for their own nation? And yet the spirit of God rushes upon Saul and he effectively cuts a covenant with the people. Right, follow me or what will happen to you is just what happened to these oxen. And it's a daring move because the last time Israel tried to call all the people together geographically, it didn't turn out so well for them. And yet... They come out as one man, the text says, and the Ammonites are routed, and for the first time in generations, there are no more naysayers in Israel. And notice that magnanimous Saul, he doesn't demand the lives of those who doubted him at the end of the previous chapter, and so how does this section end? It ends with Saul and all of the men of Israel, they're all rejoicing greatly. All right, so I said this walkthrough is going to require a little bit of time. But now you've, you've got the feel and the weight of the text, and, and it's a remarkable story, these three chapters. For what we've witnessed is not just the altered destiny of one man, namely Saul, but the destiny of a whole nation. And it's not just the political transformation of a tribal state into a monarchy, 
but it's actually the transformation of a people and their relationship with their God. And at first glance, it seems rather hopeful, even successful. Right, a king is crowned, a country has peace. There is both triumph in these chapters, there's now tribal unity again. So if getting what one desires If getting what one desires is a reliable indication that things are going well, well, then things are going great with their new king. Circumstances would suggest they made a good choice. And their relationship with God, well, given their favorable circumstances, I bet they thought their relationship with God was going quite well, thank you. I mean, don't you tend to assume in your own lives Don't you tend to assume that your relationship with God is going well on the basis often of the circumstances in your own life? Wasn't that what Job's friends, isn't that how they counseled Job in his own despair? If our lives are going well, we assume our relationship with God must be doing the same. And conversely, we often assume when lives get tough, perhaps there's something wrong with our relationship with God. Right, but were they really doing well? See, I think a closer look at this text, I don't think so. And I think there are hints all over this text that things are actually not so well in Israel as it seemed. And I think this story is meant to teach us something that surfaced even in chapter eight last week. And that gets us to lesson one. All right, so we've got the story, we've got the weight of it. First lesson I want to draw out of this story, lesson one, in judgment, in judgment, God may give you exactly what you desire. In judgment, God may give you exactly what you desire. I wondered, have you ever considered whether getting all you desire, whether or not that's actually not to your benefit, but actually to your detriment. You know, many dream of, of winning the lottery, and apart from, in my own opinion, being a despicable tax upon the poor, but that's, again, for another message, um, even those who have won often note how it has ruined their own lives. Like Bud Post, a guy in 1988, won the equivalent of about $30 million. But then his former girlfriend sued him, His own brother even put a hit out on him so they could claim the remaining money. Ruined his friendships, ruined his family, ruined his life, and now Bud lives on 450 a month in food stamps. Right, but, oh, Brad, that's an extreme case of some lottery winner. I don't know, are you so sure? Because we're given multiple clues that though Israel got what she desired, in the end, it's actually not gonna turn out very well for her. So just take Saul back in verses one and two of chapter nine. Go back to nine, verses one and two. All right, we, we noted the guy was a stud, right? Adonis-like looks. If he showed up upon today's political scene, right, he would be an immediate presidential hopeful, and we have a party that may be looking for a new candidate. I don't know. But he'd be a presidential hopeful. All this bodes well, we think, for Israel, except for this one little stubborn fact. This one little stubborn fact that the only people noted for their height in Scripture are Israel's enemies. Do you remember when the people came to take the promised land? What did they note about the people living there? It was their great height. How is Goliath presented in the Scriptures? Obviously, it's his great height is noted. 
Even Saul's good looks, his own good looks, remind us of another doomed king, Absalom. Right now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him, we read later in 1 Samuel. Contrast Saul to David. David, remember, who didn't look the part, assumed when David was brought forth, it couldn't be this little guy, this little ruddy appearance. It couldn't be David. Or contrast even Saul to Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53, 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, and yet Jesus would truly be the most lovely, the most beautiful, the most courageous man ever to grace this earth. Appearances are deceiving, right? Image isn't everything. If you remember the old Canon commercials with Andre Agassi, image is everything, well, yeah, actually, the Bible says no. Image isn't everything, and the guy often wore a wig anyway. All right, it's not everything. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong, right, with, with fit bodies or inherently wrong with beauty, but if our hope lies in those things, his beauty, his height, if it lies in these physical attributes and not in the godliness of one's own character, then we are just asking to be sorely disappointed. 1 Timothy 4.8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for both the present life and also for the life to come. You know, I was even reading this text and thinking about our own leaders here at UBC. You know, I've been praying that the Lord would provide us as a church with more elders. And what kind of men do we need? I think instinctively, we often, we go for image. The upstanding men in the community who've got a good name for themselves, right? They've made a good name for themselves, maybe in business or in civic life. They know how to manage organizations. They can really get things done. And that's all well and good, except for the fact that this isn't a business. And I'm not hawking products up here. We're not selling stuff. Spreadsheets, vision statements, all those things woefully inadequate to pastor the complexities of all the human hearts in this room. We need godly men. This church needs godly men. That's why I was praying for godly leaders in the pastoral prayer. But we need godly men capable and faithful with the word. We don't need more in the world's eyes bank presidents, professors of universities. We need pastors, men whose life is patterned after faithfulness, a godly maturity. They have a track record of discipling relationships that bear much fruit. That's what we need to search for, not sort of worldly image, but that kind of godliness, men like that, and that we then as a body be able to recognize them. But it's not just Saul's height that should give us pause, his, his beauty. There are other clues as well that all isn't well, so to speak, in Israel. Notice in chapter 9, verse 6, and all that's following, who in chapter 9 has all the solutions? It's not Saul. It's actually Saul's servant. It's Saul's servant. It doesn't even occur to Saul to seek divine aid from Samuel as they look for the donkeys. And it's striking in 918 that Samuel 
Samuel knows everything about this obscure man from the smallest of Israel's own tribes. And yet Saul is so oddly blind to spiritual realities. Saul doesn't even recognize the most famous man in all of Israel. I mean, who in Israel at this point would not know who Samuel is? What rock has this guy been living under? I mean, does he not have a TV? Has he not heard? Does he not read? Is he unaware of everything? How does he not know who Samuel is? But Saul somehow doesn't even recognize him when he comes upon him. Or take that funny coronation service in chapter 10. I mean, how is Saul chosen? He's chosen by lot. He's chosen by lot. And it's simply worth noting that up to this point thus far in Scripture, the only other time a lot has been employed in relationship to an individual was back with Achan and Joshua chapter 7. And Achan, and that's not an association you want as you're thinking about installing your king. I think all of this, this whole act of installing Saul as king, it's just pointing to how this is one grand act of cosmic treason and rebellion. Israel had a king. We saw that last week. God is their king. And he expressly called his own people to be distinct. They were not to be like the nations. And yet that's exactly what they want to be, just like the nations. And they want a leader like the nations. And so in judgment, they get exactly what they desire. We see that even in Saul's very own name. Saul means asked of God. That's what his name means. You asked of God for a king like the nations. Well, here he is, and his very name was to be a constant reminder that they got exactly what they desired. Looks that could kill, Saul had it. No doubt about that. But a man who's going to know how to lead his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? that's about as likely as the Affordable Care Act being affordable. If you want to play on that. Or Trump surviving a week where the guy hasn't shoved his boot down his throat. Like, it's just... It doesn't look very hopeful. It doesn't look very likely. And here's the sobering thing we begin to see again in judgment. God will sometimes give us exactly what we desire. He will sometimes in judgment give us exactly what we desire. And the haunting thing in these chapters is that they happily receive that gift as a sign of his pleasure and not for a moment wonder if it's actually a sign of his own punishment. And so often, I fear, could that be true of us? We demand things of God. We set our desires and say we won't be happy unless we have it. And then we get it and we think, yes, God has heard me. He's given me exactly what I desire. This is what I needed. And maybe we haven't stopped to think for a moment, actually, if that's not a sign of God's pleasure. But is that a sign of his own discipline of us? You know, if you've come this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. I just want you to think about your life, think about your passions, think about your pursuits, think about the pleasures, the things you give yourself to, and whatever those things are, are those things leading you toward God, or are they leading you away from God? Are they leading you toward him or away from him? Are they distracting you from the one who made you, or are they actually directing you toward the one who made you? For all of us act like we're not accountable to anyone or to anything. We want to pretend that we don't have to answer for our own conscience, that voice in the head. 
but we're not independent, autonomous beings. We're simply not. We're owned. All of us are owned. And one day we're going to have to answer to the one who made us. And what will matter on that day is not whether we were true to ourselves, but what will matter on that day was whether or not we're true to him. Were we true to his word? And the Israelites forgot this. The Israelites assumed they knew better. They wrongly assumed that their desires were reliable guides. Friend, beware of that. Beware of assuming that your desire is a reliable guide because we have a perfect case example right here where it was not. But they assumed their desires were reliable guides and then what did they do? They absolutized those desires. Anything that conflicted with that desire, in their case, it was desire to have a king. But you've got your own desires. And perhaps if you're a non-Christian, you've come, you might have absolutized that desire. And anything that would press against that desire, you won't have it, you won't hear it, you won't listen to it. It's got to be silenced. Right? Israel wouldn't hear word. They had to have this king like the nation's. And yet it's going to lead to their ruin. And if you've come as a non-Christian, I just want to warn you to assume those desires are reliable guides than to absolutize them and to let nothing question, nothing press in. Oh, friend, don't trust that. Don't assume it's reliable. Don't lead it, let it lead to your own ruin. But if, if even in that, or in some other way, you're beginning to see how in many respects, you're like Israel here, not wanting to heed God's word, assuming you know better. If you see yourself at all as a partner in Israel's own rebellion in these chapters, if you've seen how you've rejected God as your rightful king, because he is your king as well as he is mine, if you've rejected him, the wonderful news of the gospel, as you keep reading through this Bible, the beautiful news is that God restores rebels. He does it all the time. And it's as simple as turning from that sin and confessing, nope, it was sin, it was wrong, you are the king, you know best, I am mistaken, I confess it, and I turn to you and I trust in Christ, the one who came, the one who lived that life I can't live, the one who died on a death, the death I deserve, and then rose from the grave because he was the only son of God, rose from that grave victorious over sin and death, You place your hope in that one, in that true king, not this one, but in that king. And friend, you can be saved. You can be restored. I pray you consider that if you've come and you are not a Christian this morning. There are people at the doors. I'll be down here afterwards. Love to chat with you if you have questions about that. All right, that's our first lesson. In judgment, God may give you exactly what you desire. But praise God, friends, that's that's not all that's here. Thankfully, we don't have to end on that note. For behind that chilling reality relies even a greater truth, and it's a greater truth and a deeper comfort, and it's this, lesson two. In mercy, in mercy, God will give you exactly what you don't deserve. In mercy, God will give you exactly what you don't don't deserve. Just look back to chapter 10, verse 18. Chapter 10, verse 18. And notice the repeated I. 
I brought, it, brought up Israel. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses, and you have said, set a king over us. God has done all these remarkable things for his people, and yet Israel still runs off with another. I mean, how much will her infidelity continue? Any of us in such a marriage, we would have given up long ago, and yet God doesn't give up. I love how one writer put it. He said, listen, how mulish is God in his mercy? That's, and that's a great image to think God, he's, he's mulish in his mercy. God is stubbornly merciful with his people. And we see that even here. We'll see it with you and me. He's stubbornly merciful with us. Oh, friends, what sweet news, right? We are so fickle in our own affections, and yet he is steadfast. We're so moody. We can be you know, mercurial, and yet he is he's resolute. He's unwavering in his affections for his people. And that's not because we're blameless, not at all, but because we bear his name. That's why he's so mulish in his mercy. Notice chapter 9, back in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, that constant refrain, my people, You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And at the end of verse 17, he it is who shall restrain my people. Right? God's not done with his people. Why is it? Because they bear his name. They bear his name. That's why. He's their heritage, he says in chapter 10, verse 1. They're beautiful and they're treasured precisely because they bear his name. And God has promised himself to them and God doesn't break his own promises. Despite their faithlessness, he will remain faithful. And I trust there are some of you here that need to be reminded of that very thing. All right, you've been unfaithful this week. And you may be walking in those doors this morning and you're saying he will hold me fast and you're like, yeah, that's true for some people but not me, not this week, not how I've lived. God wouldn't have me. He certainly had enough of me. Right? He's done with me for the way in which I've rejected him. I've, I've walked astray again. Well, friend, if, if his affections were the result of your own actions, then yes, he's done with you, and he would have been done with you a long time ago. But his affections are grounded in the fact that you bear his name, that's his affection for you. If you are in Christ, his affections don't waver and they do not change because you are his. And he doesn't abandon his own. He doesn't leave his own. He will have you back. He wants you back. He's determined to have you back because you're his. And it doesn't matter what you've done this week. If you are in Christ this morning, nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. I mean, consider Saul's life. What a wonderful picture of God's mercy to Saul. I mean, who is Saul? He's, he's but from the smallest of tribes. And he's aimlessly wandering about in the desert for these lost donkeys. Nothing, spiritually speaking, commends Saul to us. And yet, while he's wallowing about in the ditches, what is God doing? What's he doing at the end of chapter 9? He's preparing a banquet table for him. Saul wallowing, wandering, kicking dust, and Samuel 
per God's instruction, preparing a banquet table for him. And just like that, this nobody becomes a somebody, and this pauper is made a prince. And if you are in Christ, is that not your own testimony? Is that not your testimony? None of us ever were truly seeking after God. The holiness that ought to attract us to God was actually that very thing that repelled us from him and our sin. And we were like like Saul. I mean, we were running from God. We were like him hiding in those handbags. We were doing the very same thing, out pursuing our own donkeys in the dust, lost and wandering. And just like that, at the appointed hour, our fortunes changed, and he changed them. Did you notice that word appointed when I read through it? Right, Saul didn't crash someone else's party. This is his party. Chapter 9, verse 24. Samuel says, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed. God had an hour appointed for each one of you if you are in Christ. And in that moment, he transferred you from being a rebel and he made you royalty. He made you part of his own. And he's preparing even now that same banquet table. He's preparing it for you, for you to gather around him and around that throne, the table of our king. How else are we to explain even Israel's victory over the Ammonites? other than God's mercy. I mean, for how is a man who's too scared to show his own face at his own coronation, how is he supposed to lead people out into battle and lead them into victory? Right, Nahash, the Ammonite king, he understood this. He says, okay, you people, you want seven days to seek help from your neighbors? I'll give you seven years. I mean, this king of yours, he's no William Wallace. I mean, people are already deserting him. Some didn't even like the fact that he's king. There's little hope, it seems, for Saul. And yet we read in chapter 11, verse 6, how the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul such that all the people come out as one man. Salvation came to Israel not because she had a king, but because this king is empowered by God's Spirit. And for now, Saul understands this. Right? This wasn't any king's doing. He understands this was the Lord's doing. Chapter 11, verse 3, verse 13 The Lord, he says, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So God may be giving them over for a season to those desires, but even we already see evidence that he never finally gives up on them. He may be giving them over for a season, but he never finally gives up on them. It was sinful to request a king, but the glorious thing is that our God is greater than our greatest mistakes. And he'll be that God for Israel, and he's that God for you too. He is greater than even our greatest mistakes. He's not vindictive with Israel. He didn't say, oh, you wanted a king. Here he is. Let him save you. And then let Nahash and the Ammonites just run over Israel. No, he intervenes despite their sinful choices. He is able to take the mess of our lives and he's able to make something beautiful out of it. And that's what he's gonna do with kingship and Samuel and that's what he does at the cross and that's what he's gonna do through your life as well. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's what he will do? That he'll take this mess of our lives and he'll make something beautiful out of it because a later Saul, a later Saul would see that this Saul who persecuted Christians, but that Saul who became Paul saw 
how God could take the mess of his own life and turn it even into something beautiful. All right, so where are we to look? Just to return to that first question, where are we to look in order to know if we're truly doing well? I hope you begin to doubt and to question your circumstances and your desires as reliable guides. We're not to look to our circumstances any more than Israel was to look to Saul. For in many ways, Saul, all Saul does here is serve as a picture of Adam back in that garden. Remember chapter 10, verse 21. Right, Saul has been selected by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Remember, he's hiding among the baggage. God was calling out to him, and he's foolishly hiding, just like that first Adam back in the garden. God calling him out, and he's hiding. No, we don't look to our circumstances anymore again than Israel looked to Saul. Who do we look to? We look to the sun. That's what Christians do. We look to the sun. Our cry is verse 22. Is there still a man to come? Is there still a man to come? Chapter 10, verse 22. And yes, praise God, there was still a man to come. It wasn't Saul. It wasn't Samuel. It wasn't even dated. There would come a second Adam who would not hide in the shadows, but this one would step out into the light because he is the light. And there on the cross, this second Adam would stand truly head and shoulders above the rest. From his shoulders upwards, he would be taller than any of the people and any who would come after him. And though he wasn't of the nations, this second Adam would become like the nations in their own sin, bearing that sin so that we wouldn't have to. And there in the heat of the day, as God's anointed one, he would deliver his people, not the heat of the day and the deliverance of the Ammonites, but in the heat of that day, the deliverance from our own sin and from Satan himself. He would work that kind of salvation that would cause not merely men to rejoice, but that second Adam would work a salvation that would cause heaven itself to erupt with praise and joy and with thanksgiving. I want you to see that how you are doing has everything to know with whether or not you know this second Adam who was to come. Because your circumstances are not reliable guides. They can deceive you. Your past sins, they're not a reliable guide because those sins can condemn you. The only reliable guide as to whether or not you are truly doing well is if you know this king who is still to come. If you know Jesus as God's one and only son. Friend, do you know him? Oh, don't leave this morning without coming to the grips of this one, of this God who is mulish in his mercy and has provided his own son for you. Let's pray together. Oh God, we prayed earlier about how great are our needs. And we pray even now that you would help us to see what our needs truly are. You'd help reveal to us which desires of ours are good and godly desires and which desires of us, in fact, actually may lead us astray. Oh God, we pray that you do this work in us. 
God, we pray that we would run, not run after the things of this world, but we would run after you and mercy the one who's provided your son as the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our own sins. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.